Well, good morning, church, and happy Thanksgiving to you. What a great holiday this is, um, one, of my, one of my favorites, an opportunity to stop and take measure of the things that we do have to give thanks for. And I, I hope that you will do that. I, I hope that um, if you're getting together family and you're sitting around a table, maybe there's a game you're looking forward to watching, I hope that you will, as a family, go around and each share something that you are thankful to God for. Um, I also hope that many of you will come tonight to the community Thanksgiving service um, over at Trinity Presbyterian Church. What a neat time for Christians in our community to come gather as one from different Bible-believing churches to worship God and give Him thanks together. Uh, If you haven't already made those plans, I hope you will. Um, By the way, if you're, um, maybe you're single or maybe you um, don't have kids, Whenever you hear the word family, don't, don't think we mean um, not you. We, we do mean you, okay? We're talking about the family of God. So for like a Rocky family night, we want everybody to show up. Uh, for tonight, it would be really, really great if many of you would show up and, and would come and, and just worship and give God thanks with other Christians so we could kind of all unite together. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, well, I tell you this morning, I am thankful for Jesus. I am thankful that he was faithful to go to the cross for us, to to save us from our sins, to give us hope and and eternal life. Maybe you're struggling today, and maybe you're struggling for hope even. There is hope in Christ, and I I pray that that you'll you'll fix your eyes on him this Thanksgiving. Uh, Jesus, at this point in his life and his ministry that we're we're reading about here in, in John chapter 12, He was in the middle of rejection from many. Suddenly a crowd that that had just like rejoiced and welcomed him into this city saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now they're they're turning because he's talking about things like death and self-denial. And this was not what this crowd expected from their Messiah. And yet he was faithful to the end. And I am thankful for his faithfulness in spite of rejection. Now, in our text this morning that that Pastor Billy just read, we see here John giving us some of his commentary on unbelief in verses 37 through 41. And even he talks about what I'll call fickle belief in verses 42 um, through 43. And and finally, we see here Jesus um, sharing Uh, about true belief or authentic belief in his final plea, the the final words that he gives uh, in the Gospel of John to to the crowds. And everything from this point forward we're going to see is Jesus with his disciples uh, in the upper room and in discourse and Jesus out uh, in the garden uh, praying to his Father. We will see some words later from Jesus uh, at his trial, but these were really words of defense versus uh, proclaiming the message. And so we want to listen to these, these last words, in a sense, to the crowds. This morning, as Jesus gives a final plea for belief in verse 43 through 50. And really, this text very much talks about the themes of belief versus unbelief, or, and, and we'll call fickle belief as well, which is kind of in the middle somewhere, and we'll talk about that. But I counted the word in the ESV, belief, seven times. In this, in this short passage. So this is really a key theme. And, and in Jesus' final plea, I, I count it three times. So we really want to think about the concept 
of belief. What is belief and what is unbelief? Well, let's talk about that. Our first point this morning is unbelief. And, and so what is it? Well, one pastor wrote, and I really like this definition, unbelief is the conscious rejection of God and His Word. Now that's a little bit different from doubt. Many of us have probably struggled in our Christian life even, and, and, and maybe before you became a believer, with doubt, and, 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 and doubt that leads to further investigation of the truth is not the same as biblical unbelief. What we see here is, is having all the evidence in the world of the truth, that Jesus is indeed who He said He was, the Messiah, and yet choosing to reject Him from a hard heart. You know, you know people believe what they want to believe. No one has a neutral heart. There, there's, there's, there's the intellect, but then there's the will, and no one's will is morally neutral. It's not a neutral chess game, right? And we're going to see that here. An unbelieving heart hates the idea of submission to God and His plan and His ways. Well, John here, when he looks at unbelief, he really looks at two aspects of unbelief. And the first is human responsibility. That would be our moral responsibility for the choices as human beings that we make. And so we read in verse 37, he says, though he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Now John, John's already told us that many in this very crowd that Jesus is speaking to, many of them had actually witnessed the incredible miracle of his resurrection of Lazarus, okay? And, and then there were others in the crowd who had not actually seen it, but they had heard it from the eyewitnesses. And, and the, the, these folks we read uh, just a few verses before had been like prolifically talking about what they had seen because it was the most amazing thing they'd ever seen. They had seen Jesus bring a truly dead man back to life, okay? And, and so the, the Pharisees, particularly those who we read about being assigned moral culpability for this stubborn, hard unbelief, they, they, they may had not been there, but they had heard of this truth, they had the ability to investigate this truth, but they had also met others that Jesus had actually healed, like the man born blind. They, they had spoken to his parents, yes, this is our son who was born blind, and this man healed him from his blindness. And so there, there's no excuse for their unbelief, and we, we read John talking about their unbelief as a lament. It's as if John is sighing here when he says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. And this goes right back to something John wanted us to get in the introduction to his letter, in the, the, the beautiful words of John chapter 1, verse 11, he says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Now, of course, John was one of God's own people, one of, one of the Jews, one of the people that God had, had made a covenant with, that he had elected, 
out of his own grace and said, you will be my people and I will be your God. And yet, he sighs, they did not receive him. And of course, he doesn't mean every one of them, all the disciples were Jews, but many, the majority at the time, the leadership did not receive him. And so he says in verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is a quote from that great messianic um, uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 about the, the suffering servant. It's a quote from Isaiah 53, 1, and it starts out by, by saying, who has believed what he's heard from us? They, they, they had seen the strong arm of the Lord revealed through the miracles of Jesus Christ. And so the blame for their unbelief lies squarely on them, on their hard hearts that refuse to believe. And, And so it is true with humanity today. God reveals himself to us through nature, through his word, and the blame for the unbelief of mankind lies squarely on us, who would rather worship the creation, worship ourselves, than worship the creator. Now John here ascribes as well a secondary reason or cause for their unbelief, and and this is a, a cause, this is a verse that may startle us today. It may in fact offend our modern sensibilities. And this is divine sovereignty. So let's look at verse 39 and 40. He says, therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. See, even in proclamations of judgment, God is merciful. But here again we see John quoting from Isaiah. This time it's from chapter six when when God had first called Isaiah uh, to be a prophet and had given him a commission, a a word to speak. God had told Isaiah that their hearts will be hardened. Their ears won't listen. Their eyes will will uh, um, will be blinded. And here, we, we see John telling us that this, at this prophecy that God gave Isaiah applies here to those who were rejecting Jesus, that it, he says God had hardened their heart. Now, this is not an easy text or an easy concept to swallow, and it is important that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Let me, let me talk about that principle for a moment. Um, when we're interpreting the Bible, okay, Uh, It is always important to interpret Scripture within its immediate context, uh, but also within the entire context of the Bible, the context of redemption. Uh, There's there's a doctrine or an aspect of the the doctrine of of, um, biblical interpretation we call hermeneutics called the perpescuity of Scripture. That's the, the clarity of Scripture. And so when there's a verse that's maybe hard to understand or seems obtuse to us, you want to interpret that in uh, in light of verses that are more clear. But what we need to be careful is that we not take a, a verse that we like better and interpret other verses uh, uh, based on our subjective likes. Does that make sense? And that is very easy for the um, interpreter, uh, the reader, 
to do. Make sure that it's not that verse that you've memorized and you say, okay, this is gonna be the foundation and anything that seems to go against that, I'm just gonna kinda toss out. So, so we don't have, on the one hand, the right to just toss this out because it seems to go against uh, uh, a lot of what we know about God. The invitations he gives to all to come to the gospel, right? We, we, we dare not toss this out. That is not being mastered by scripture. It's seeking to master scripture. But then there are those who would want to take this verse and would want to build their entire theology upon it, okay? And ignore a whole lot of other scripture. And so let's not do that either. So let's be careful to tremble before God's word and to accept um, all of his word and say, when, when we get to a point that we have a hard time maybe reconciling truths, that instead of throwing one out, we say, Lord, I, I believe, help, help, help my unbelief. Um, but I'll believe exactly what you have shared with me. So let's seek to interpret this text in which we read about God hardening hearts Let's seek to interpret that with Scripture. Where else does the Bible talk about God hardening hearts? Well, you know what? Not, there's not a lot of Scripture that talks about this. Okay, and to be honest with you, I'm glad. But the Bible does talk about this in Romans chapter 9. In fact, God comments on, uh, or I'm sorry, Paul, uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 9, comments on God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And the context is God was, was calling Moses to be his prophet, to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you understand here that the Bible doesn't tell us which Pharaoh this happened to be. We don't know if this was Ramses or you know, one of the other famous Pharaohs, but what we do know is that Pharaoh and the, and the Egyptians considered him to be a god. So a counterfeit god, that the true god who was calling Moses Um, what was gonna go up against, okay? And so Moses was to go and to perform 10 signs from God that God was gonna do through Moses telling Pharaoh, let my people go. And yet, in the context, God had told Moses before he even started that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Hard to quite, quite wrap our minds around, but let's look into the text and let's look carefully a little bit at what it actually says and what the, how the progression works. So we read in Romans chapter nine, verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, well how did that happen? We'll think back to the great miracle of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea and the the, the destruction of of Pharaoh's army, his power, the right hand of his power in that Red Sea. And what had to happen for this to happen? Pharaoh had to harden his heart. Now, notice here, so then, this is Romans 9, 18, he that is God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And so God had made it clear that he would indeed harden Pharaoh's heart. But wait, when you go back and you look at the narrative in Exodus, in chapter eight we read twice explicitly in the narrative that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In fact, when you go back and you look at the, 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 the interaction between Moses and Pharaoh, and you look at the the 10 different plagues 
in the first five plagues, we actually see Pharaoh, it, it either saying Pharaoh's heart was hardened, was hard, or that Pharaoh specifically hardened his own heart against the evidence and the miracles and the message that Moses brought. And then we see a change. In, in, uh, in the sixth and the seventh plague and the plagues beyond that, we see in the narrative that God then hardened Pharaoh's heart. So how did that work exactly? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was that Pharaoh or was it God? And I think the answer is yes, right? Now how did that work out? And I think this is important for us to understand. D.A. Carson writes, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. If you're interested in hearing that again, that's a mouthful. Um, email me, I'll be glad to send you that quote, okay? But very un important to understand here that the hardening of the wicked's heart is God giving them over to what they have already chosen and what they desire, and that is life without Him. In other words, you might say it's God leaving mankind to Himself, leaving mankind alone, uh, bringing, taking His light and removing it from a wicked heart that doesn't want to believe. And this is what we see when we look at Romans chapter one. We see God's interaction with mankind who is already rejecting his revealed truth. In Romans chapter one, verse 24, we read, therefore, God gave them up. That's very important, that, that verbiage. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And in verse 28 of Romans chapter one, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, you see their moral culpability in choosing to not acknowledge but reject God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God revealed his, or God, God removed his light from their hearts and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were hardened. Now I see here a great warning for us in these words. And what I mean here is, maybe you're sitting here today and in truth, you're on the fence. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I, plan at a later time to repent and to follow Jesus, but right now I love my sin too much, right? I want to be the captain of my ship right now, and later I'm going to get right with God, to use some of the popular vernacular today. Maybe that's you, and if that is you, let me warn you not to believe that you will repent and follow Christ wholeheartedly tomorrow or next year because there is a point of no return. And you don't know where that point of return may lie. Now I would say to you who are praying for a loved one who doesn't know the Lord, you don't know either, keep praying. As long as there's a heartbeat in that chest, you keep praying for them, 
Okay, there was a thief on a cross who had been a wicked man, and in his last moments, Jesus saved him. Okay, so you keep praying. We have no right to ever assign to somebody, nope, you are beyond the point of no return. Only the Lord knows that. But the warning here is, um, God does um, say enough. And we have seen that uh, in the case of Pharaoh, and we've seen that here in the case of wicked men, wicked religious leaders who are rejecting their Messiah, and God indeed, we read, hardened their hearts by removing his spirits, uh, spirit from, from, from them. Now, let me share a few more implications here. Uh, in God's, that I see here in God's sovereignty. Because we're talking about his sovereignty over unbelief. Well, he's clearly sovereign over belief as well. And we could look at a host of scripture, but I just wanna make a couple points since this is a, a very difficult text that is actually talking about hardening. This should never lead to belief that God is somehow the author of evil. James 1, 13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So let us never be tempted in our, own, um, in our own extrapolations, our own mental extrapolations, to think that somehow God is the one who is the author of evil. The Bible says he is not. One Old Testament scholar commentating on, on Pharaoh says the fact that God can steer evil towards his purposes does not mean he engineered it. Pharaoh is responsible for his own evil. However, there is no force of human evil that can resist God's purpose to bring salvation and blessing to all nations. You see, his grace is indeed irresistible. And so that leads to a, another warning. We should never think that God is limited by human evil in accomplishing his plan. Pastor Matt Carter, in, in commenting on this particular context where we read about God hardening the hearts of, of these leaders who were rejecting, and this crowd that was rejecting Jesus, he says, it was necessary for some to reject him so that he could take his place on the cross and die the death we deserve. Jesus needed to die. He came to die. He did not come to earth to be cheered, accepted, and embraced by everyone. It, it, if that had happened, he would have never fulfilled the ultimate purpose of his coming to die the brutal death of a criminal. John is showing how the unbelief of the Jews fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. So is God the primary cause of the rejection of Christ or of moral evil? Absolutely not. Is God sovereign over it? Does he use it for his purposes? Yes, he does. John MacArthur writes, God is certainly sovereign over evil. There's a sense in which it is even proper to say that evil is part of his eternal decree. He planned for it. It did not take him by surprise. It is not an interruption of his eternal plan. He declared the end from the beginning and he is still working all things for his good pleasure. Now a third point I wanna make in terms of implication here regarding God's sovereignty is that this doctrine should never lead us to try to judge 
God. In fact, when Paul talks in Romans chapter 9 about God's sovereign choice of of Jacob versus Esau, and he talks about um, Pharaoh's hardening, he says simply, uh, when when he anticipates the question, how's that fair? Right? And 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 his response is, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Doesn't the potter have ownership rights over the clay? That's his response. But the truth of it is, if it were not for God's sovereign grace, all of us would reject him still. So his justice would be to simply condemn us all because each of us of our own will has rejected him and will reject him because of our depravity, our desire to worship self and the creation and the creature instead of the creator. And so the doctrine of God's sovereignty should lead us to humility and to prayerfulness and to passion for evangelism. Jesus said, you did not choose me, he's talking to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. Now what is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about evangelism. The fruit are our salvations. He's talking about winning souls. And so when we believe that God's spirit draws sinners when we pray, what should that lead us to do? Pray all the more. If he truly is omnipotent and able to to take even the most hardened uh, terrorists like Saul and turn him into a Paul, what should we do when it comes to our neighbors and, and our loved ones who don't yet know him, who have hard hearts towards him? We should pray and know that he loves us and he hears our prayers. And sometimes he chooses to wait a good while before granting them. Sometimes we don't even know the results of our prayers until we get to heaven. But we should pray for the lost. And we should seek to share the gospel with great hope. Our hope is not in our own ability to convince, by the way, or to to twist an arm or manipulate. Our hope is in his power to open dark hearts. And and we need to understand, we we see the weight of Scripture on evangelism to everyone, right? The Lord says in the Old Testament, as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So turn from your wicked way and live. Now, the Bible never logically pits the sovereignty of God against the responsibility of man. We might, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. We see his sovereignty. And he who comes to me, here we see the responsibility of man. I will never cast out. Remember that, friend. He who comes to me, I will never cast out. Someone asked uh, the, the, the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was Um, known for his high views of God's sovereignty, how he could possibly reconcile divine sovereignty and free will. Spurgeon simply said, I never try to reconcile friends. That was his response. So what does Jesus do? Jesus cries out to everyone with the invitation to gospel light. What we see in verse 36 of John 12, the last words before this commentary from John, Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And so we see John's commentary on unbelief, but let's talk about fickle belief. 
verse 42. He writes, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed to him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I don't know about you, but I am convicted when I read those words. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I think we need to just stop and think about our lives. Do we care more about God's glory or man's? I have to ask myself that question. Um, I spent some time this week trembling in fear over this sermon because I know this is a charged topic here, the blast point we just made about God's sovereignty. Uh, it is misunderstood. It is uh, a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll jump on the, the train of logical extrapolation and then assign and say, okay, if you believe this, X, X plus you know, Y equals Z, so therefore you must believe this, and we get mad, and, and uh, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I love all of you, but, uh, and I love what I hear from you, but you know, I, I could foresee getting emails from different folks uh, with very different criticisms and takes and misunderstandings, all right? But I, I prayed this morning, Lord, help me to fear you first. Uh, help me to seek to be faithful and to please you rather than my natural human desire to, to please others, to please people first. So I'm convicted. Um, when you're at a restaurant, kids, and your dad says, let's bow to pray, is there a joy there? Or are you like, oh no, you know, maybe someone will look and see. Um, do you, do, you, do you, you guys, ladies, when you're traveling, do you stop and you sit in a restaurant by yourself? Do you stop and, and pray? Or are you fearing what others may think? Do you love the glory that comes from man more or the glory that comes from God? You know, I, I remember as a young man, um, uh, just out of college, kind of living the dream um, off in the Philippines in the jungle, um, learning about missions and I told my mentor, Bob Tebow, hey, after a few months, just turn me loose, man. I want to get up a deep, you know, backpack deep in the jungle. He said, okay, that's, that's what you want. Uh, Basilio was the name of one of his, his uh, local church planters, worked in the jungles of Mindanao. You know, Troy's all yours. You guys have fun together. So we spent months trekking all over the jungle, um, carrying the Jesus film, you know, on, a, on bamboo poles with an actual, like, projector, like, 38 millimeter projector, you know what I mean? A little bullhorn and a sheet. And, and I remember in Mindanao climbing these, these jungle trails, getting to a village that according to Basilio had no church, where, where no one understood the gospel, right? And we were literally, you know, through rain, through mud, leeches, leech-filled rivers, carrying the Jesus film to get up there in, the, in their language, and we're going to show it to them. And, and, you know, they'd never seen a movie before and all this stuff and share the Christ. And I remember uh, in a very remote area, struggling to get up this, 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 this muddy mountain, and this guy comes down this little jungle trail, and he's got a little horse, this little mountain horse that's just struggling, and on the back of the mountain horse, there's probably a hundred bottles of Coke. No kidding. Like, all these, like, boxes, like crates with little bottles of Coke all tied to this poor little horse, and, and you know what came to my mind was, all right, Coca-Cola has beat the gospel to this village, all right? And so I was actually kind of lamenting that fact and, 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 and actually being honest, honest with you, I, I had recently done a little study of giving trends in the American church towards missions. 
And I was pretty sure that American Christians spent more money on Coke every year than they did on missions work, okay? Uh, I knew for a fact they spent more money on dog food. And, and I'd, I'd done that research. So I, to be honest with you, I was, I'm, I'm struggling up this, this trail and I'm, I'm, I'm having dark thoughts a little bit and I'm lamenting out loud uh, complacency in America for missions. And I'm lamenting the, the whole concept of the carnal Christian. And Basilio, who, um, Basilio was a very interesting fellow. He, he sometimes said things that uh, you didn't really want to, you know, that, that were, weren't kind. He used to say, uh, he had been persecuted by Muslims in Mindanao, so he would say, Troy, buddy, I tell you, the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, Basilio, I don't think that's a very kind thing or Christ-like thing to say. Um, and, and so, but he looks at me and he says to me, he says, Troy, buddy, there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. I was like, you know what? He's right. And I thought of Jesus' words as I was preparing this, this passage. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So maybe there's somebody that you live close to or you work close to that you need to go this week and let know, hey, I'm a Christian. I'll end that point there. Let's move on to the final point of authentic belief. Um, Jesus is the one who talks to us about authentic belief. Now, there's a whole lot more going on. Jesus is talking to us here as well about um, his, his, um, uh, who he is. He's talking about his, his presence and, and, and he's gonna talk about, we're, we're gonna see here, uh, he's talking about his unity with the Father. Um, but let's talk about authentic belief verses 44 through 50. Now authentic belief in this text we see means seeing the light, keeping his word, and receiving the gift and the promise and the hope of eternal life. So let's talk about seeing the light. Verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in, in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Now Jesus isn't saying that um, we don't believe in Jesus if we believe in him. He's saying, I and the Father are one. Whoever believes in um, who, uh, uh, believe in me, if you want to know the Father, believe in me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Back in John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These are the, the final words of Jesus to this crowd right before his crucifixion. So we need to listen to what Jesus has to say. And, 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 and there's no doubt Jesus here is making a divine claim. Now again, maybe you, you, you've, you're probably aware that in the Gospel of John, um, uh, there, there's the deity of Christ all over the place, right? John writes so that we, we may believe that he is the very Son of God. Okay, maybe you've, you, you've struggled in a conversation with someone who didn't believe Jesus was equal with God. 
And, and maybe you think, okay, I'll go back to John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God. And they're like, ah, no, wrong. You got the wrong translation. Uh, my Bible says the Word was a God, okay? Uh, what, what I would say, first of all, um, you could get into a big debate about Greek or whatever with them at that point. But what you could also say is, hey, let's get together and read the Gospel of John together. And let's just note every single time that Jesus says something so preposterous that it would be impossible, you're forced to either believe he is God himself or he's just a total liar or a lunatic, right? And and here's one of those. Jesus is claiming to be light. God had appeared to their forefathers in the wilderness as a pillar of fire and Jesus says, that was me. In the whole context of, of John, Chapter 8, he's right in the temple, he's right at the, 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 the big uh, uh, lampstands that commemorate that. He's saying, that was me, this is me, I am the light. Now what's incredible here, and I, I skipped over this, um, maybe you guys back in the AV booth, I think I forgot to move this around a little bit, but verse 41, if you go back to verse 41, we read a really shocking statement. Right after this, this, this quote from Isaiah chapter 6 about hardening, verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, now there was a time in which, in which Isaiah saw the Lord's glory. That was Isaiah chapter 6, right? Isaiah chapter 6, and let's put that up, guys, if you would, if you can find that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. That's Isaiah's recollection of his encounter, having a vision of God. And here we say John saying, he saw Jesus. Whoa. He saw the glory of God. He saw Christ. And he saw him in a prophetic manner, such that in it later in, in, in chapter 53, he could, he could talk about this suffering servant. Well, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says... This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. God is light. And here Jesus is calling himself light. And in him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. How can God allow the darkness, people like us, full of darkness in his presence? Well, because he's holy, he can't. But he, 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 he shines a light in our hearts. He sent his son to be light in this world, to die on the cross for our sins and to cleanse us with his blood so that we might be in his presence. We might reflect his light in a dark world, and the beauty of, of understanding his sovereignty, not only in history and sitting Jesus, but even in your historical life, is that there was a time that you walked in darkness just serving yourself, and he shone his light into your heart, and he gave you the ability to believe. 
Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace are we saved through faith, and it is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith. Now, is that something that we are called upon to exercise? Yes. Put your faith in Jesus. We all have faith in something, right? Ourself, we all have, you guys all have great faith in those pews right now. You're, you're resting your weight in them. But there's no way anyone is going to turn from their dark, in their darkness to Jesus unless he first shines that light in their heart by his sovereign grace. So let's give him praise for that. Let's see the light. Let's see him. Let's give him praise and all gratitude and all thanksgiving and all credit for our salvation. And then let's put our hope in him for the salvation of others as we go and we share. As we go and we share, and we're faithful to his command to proclaim the gospel to every, every person on earth. Okay, so seeing the light as part of authentic belief, keeping his word is part of authentic belief. And Jesus here speaks, he kind of tur- tur- turns it negatively. He says in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Now, at this point, folks are thinking, great, awesome, right? I'll take that, the the loving Jesus, not the judging Jesus, but wait, keep reading. He says, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That was his first coming. He's coming again to judge the world, we read. But he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So we need to understand that, that faith comes by hearing and believing and keeping the word of Christ. You know, the word of Christ uh, is powerful. We, we read in, in Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1 that Jesus created the world through the word of his power. And, and he saves through the word of his power and his word will be the judge of unbelief. He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So if we're gonna take these words and put them positively, what Jesus is saying, is those who believe in Christ will indeed follow his commands. And, and do, you know, if you're, if you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, hey, um, am I authentically his? Do, do, I, do I have this authentic faith, this authentic belief? Well, one diagnostic would be, do I long to follow his commands? None of us follow his commands perfectly. But do I want to? Do, do I repent when I fall short? Does it, does it grieve me? Uh, does it quickly grieve me even? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's gonna be the arc of your life. That's gonna be the, the, the target, the desire of your life. And Jesus says those with authentic faith receive eternal life. They receive eternal life. Verse 50, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And as we land the plane here, let me just say this, that Jesus is talking about life or death. These are his last words to the crowd. He's talking about eternal life or death. So if you're on the fence this morning and, and you're, you're wanting to hold back and yielding your heart to him, 
Don't let his sovereignty ever be an excuse. It is never an excuse for, for the command that he gives to all people to repent and believe. Turn and believe. Make that decision. Get over your pride or your unbelief that, that something else is going to give you more pleasure right now, more joy, more happiness, and yield your life to Jesus. Call on his name and ask him to be your Savior. This Thanksgiving, I, I hope that each of you will give thanks to God for Jesus. Christ was one with his Father, we, we see here in this text. Jesus is equal with the Father, and yet he left that glory to go on a rescue mission for all who will repent of their sins and believe in him. And so I, I pray that's every one of you in this room this morning, but if it's not you, if you are not trusting in him today. I pray that today will be the day that you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you will believe in your heart that he died on a cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead. And the Bible promises if you do that, genuinely, you will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And do you know you're the child of God? And if you know you're his child, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And I pray you will take the time and, and invest the, your thoughts this week in giving him thanksgiving from your heart for that. Let's thank him together. Heavenly Father, your ways are truly higher than ours. The bandwidth of our intellects cannot fully um, absorb and fully understand all of your ways, and yet we trust you and we rejoice in you and we worship you for, the, for your greatness and for your sovereignty. And Lord, I, I pray that if there's any soul in this room who has not yet converted, does not yet belong to Christ, I pray that you would open their heart today, that you would shine the light of the gospel in their hearts, so they would recognize, wait a minute, what have I been doing? And Lord, may they, may they look to Jesus in faith today and confess that he is, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. May they, may they ask him to be their personal Savior and Lord. And I pray that you would come in and, and dwell with them and, and be their Lord and Savior, that they would live in relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of eternal life Help us to truly be thankful as we should be to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.